Welcome, and thanks for listening to AGI SureTrack Coffee Talk. Today's episode is a Coffee Talk conversation measuring success. Here's your host, Laura Hankey. We are so excited this morning to be here, as Brian said, with Mitchell and Jason um, to talk about carbon markets and a lot of things that are going on here in agriculture today. So without any further delay, let's go ahead and throw things over to Mitchell to get started. Mitch, you come from a long line of farmers. You know, let's start this conversation here this morning by talking about your heritage and, you know, what that decision looked like to push the envelope in soil management and kind of move away from some of those traditional packages or, excuse me, management practices. Yeah, uh, no, thanks for, for having me on. You mentioned carbon sure. markets, it just gets my blood boiling already, so I'm excited. So just everyone, just forewarning. So, um, but yeah, I'm I'm seventh generation on my family's farm. We're in Southeast Iowa, Washington County. Um, Ainsworth is technically the, the little town. Uh, we farm about 700 acres there, corn, soybeans, and cereal rye here this year. Uh, over the last couple of years, we've also added to the mix winter wheat, malt barley, and seed mustard, uh, really trying to diversify our system and just find new opportunities. And I guess we have a hard time saying no uh, to uh, trying new stuff. And and uh, dad doesn't tell me no enough, I guess, on uh, ideas that I bring to him. Um, but uh, the conservation side of things has been ingrained for a really long time. And that's why we're at the spot that we're at. Uh, dad started using no-till in 1978. And we've been using cover crops since 2013. So pretty deep into the space, Washington County, where we're at, uh, has a long history of this. It's not just my family. Uh, there's a lot of other very prominent family farms in the area that have a similar story here um, on their introduction. Long time no-till um, and now, you know, multiple, multiple years into cover crops. And uh, there's some farms that have been using cover crops way longer than we have. Um, but we're definitely trying to push the, push the envelope, drive further. Uh, because it's about making money and we're using the cover crop and the no-till and these conservation systems as offensive management tools. They've got to be able to drive dollars to our bottom line. We're only 700 acres. We got to be able to make this work um, and be profitable in every decision that we make. And it's got to be profitable now and uh, and we can't wait. So, so that's really the the key thing. Um, Learning from others, continuing to expand. I bought the a farm right around the parent right around the corner from my parents' place uh, when I graduated from Iowa State a couple of years ago. So a little chunk uh, to add on to the operation, but um, exciting things happening. We'll finish up harvesting corn here today. So oh, uh, congratulations and, and uh, <laughs> head back out to the farm and uh, we'll be done harvesting here today. So, so yeah, that's always a good feeling. That last row, that those uh, last rows. So, you know, Mitchell, you're not just pushing the envelope for your farm. You guys are really working to push the envelope for a lot of farms. You're working with farmers. You started this continuum continuum ag business. Talk a little bit about that, what that is, and how that uh, has helped the industry. Yeah, so I started continuum ag in 2015. I was a junior at Iowa State. Um, My degrees are in agronomy and ag systems technology. I got connected with soil health and this Haney soil health test, and and, uh, we were looking for better opportunities to manage fertility for our own farm. Regular soil sampling with grids was just not making sense for our operation. Dad was super frustrated and a lot of other farmers in this area were as well because regular soil sampling is set up only to look at the chemistry in the system. And it's really designed to, it's sold a lot of fertilizer um, and it's helped to implement precision ag systems. Yeah. But especially if you're looking 
to move into a more regenerative system, uh, that soil is very biologically driven. And it's the biology that's going to help you to manage your fertility. The biology is what's actually farming the crops and the crops are farming the biology. It's not us. As caretakers of the land, we're actually farming those microbes. They know how to farm the crop way better than we do. And now with the Haney test, we're able to understand that. So started the, the company then helping farmers do soil sampling and use the Haney test. And then we built a software uh, to be able to manage that. It's the first soil health data software. And we're making all the variable rate fertility recommendations based on the Haney test. Now expanding into these carbon initiatives and such. Um, Current business footprint is 36 states and 14 countries. Uh, current team's 21 people. So uh, early, young, small, but uh, lean and mean and growing and uh, trying to get this figured out with the number one thing of help farmers become more economically resilient and environmentally sustainable. Number one, implement the principles of soil health and be able to manage your fertility protect yield on a year-to-year basis. And if you can open up opportunities in a carbon market or a sustainable supply chain or um, or even cost share, cool. Uh, but that's the cherry on top and just ways to diversify how do we get this paid for so that a farmer is for sure going to have success here economically and they understand the logistics of how to get there successfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the Haney test is something that I had jotted down in my notes. I expected when I saw that you guys were doing soil testing with your topsoil program, that the Haney test was what you were going to be using. That's not a test this fall and react next spring. Talk about what that turnaround looks like. You guys are making management decisions pretty quickly working with farmers. Oh, yeah, it's got to happen right away. Um, so the main difference on the Haney test versus a regular test is a regular test uses really strong acids average, like malic is a 2.4 pH, really strong acid that kind of knocks all the nutrients out of the soil to give us a estimate of the nutrients that should come available to the crop in the next growing season. The Haney test uses a weaker acid that's less buffered. So it reacts to what is the actual pH of the soil. And it shows us our current assets, our current nutrients that are plant available today. The, the extraction that Dr. Haney put together is plant exudate type of acids. So it's those acids that a plant is excreting into the soil to naturally uh, um, enable the nutrients to cycle. That's what we're looking at with the Haney test. So uh, we do some in the fall, but I definitely mostly recommend doing those, doing the Haney test in the spring when you are under, when you need to know what is my plant seeing today? The turnaround time is about a week, just like regular soil sampling. And then uh, we're able to map all that out and help a farmer to make a decision with the main thing being, it's not only looking at your inorganic P and K and micronutrients and your pH and organic matter, like we're used to looking at, but we can also see the organic phosphorus, the nitrate, the ammonium, and the organic nitrogen that's in the soil. We can see the water extractable organic carbon, which is microbe food. It's the sugars that are feeding the whole system. And we can actually quantify biological activity. Those are little workers that are in the soil that are fun- that are driving the entire system. And in one teaspoon of healthy soil, there's more microbes than there are people on the earth. In one teaspoon, more microbes in one teaspoon of soil than there are people on the earth. We need to enable those little critters to work for us and make us money. <laughs> and we got to right. and now we got the data to be able to do just that. 
Yeah. Yeah. It, man, it's an exciting time in agriculture. Yeah. Like it, it's more exciting than it's ever been before. You know, from my perspective, we are learning so much every day. Um, and with that, you know, you mentioned data, Jason, come into this conversation here. Thanks for joining us this morning. We really appreciate uh, you spending some time with us to talk about what FarmMobile is doing on the data collection side. You know, Mitch, Jason, let's open this up and just have a general conversation about, you know, how are farmers feeling about data collection today? Are they really seeing that as an opportunity to be competitive and profitable, or is it just one more thing that's adding to their day? Jason, let's start with you. I believe everyone I believe all the growers out there understand that there's a need to have better records probably than they do today because they believe that they're going to be worth something in the future, but it's still a little foggy as to, you know, what, what exact data do I need to collect? Um, how much is it going to be worth? Is it worth it for me to invest my time in collecting all this data? And so I think there's still, the market is ill-defined for, for the, I'm going to call them environmental programs. They could be carbon. They could be water. They could, there's a whole bunch of different programs out there that what Mitchell's talking about, there's going to be um, dollars available to, to for, for sponsoring, you know, these types of activities. And so it's, it's an undefined market. It's kind of like, you know, Chicago was in, in, in the late 1800s when we, we didn't know how to centralize the pricing of grain. We didn't know how to standardize it. We didn't know how to, how to really bring a market together. And, and over, you know, over a course of 20 years, we really put together a, a fairly sophisticated market that, that still pretty much exists today in the principles that happened. And the same thing is going to happen in what I call differentiated grain markets. And, and a prerequisite of that is going to be having the data required for the program you're participating in. And those standards are yet to be determined. So it's collect as much as you can. And, and you know, within your, you don't have to go out and buy all brand new equipment, but I'm saying that there's, there's a middle ground there to collect it. And I think the the big piece here that's different is making that data interoperable is a really, really important piece of it because uh, the analogy I've been using is if you go to a bank and you put in $100 and they only let you pull out $50 of that, you wouldn't go to that bank very long. And a lot of these automatic um, data collection places that, that are free or, or highly discounted, um, a lot of times the data you get back out isn't all the data that went in. And so we have to get better at making sure that we can pull out the data we need to be able to take advantage of the opportunities in the market that exist for, for the growers. And, and it should be the growers to be able to figure out which way to go there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mitchell, same question. You know, what does that first phone call look like that you hear from farmers? Are you helping them to catalog some of that? What does that management program look like on your end? Yeah, so at Continuum Ag, we do two things. We help a farmer to define point A, Sometimes that includes soil sampling, but really it's where am I at today, management-wise and all that. Define point A and help them to understand what's point B and how do I get there. We're the Expedia for soil health. Here's where I'm at today. Here's where I want to go. Here's how I'm going to get there. And uh, and we actually do, um, I've got two of the farm mobile systems um, that we're playing around with uh, right now, just doing a, an initial little trial here this year. So that's why it was fun to, uh, you know, to be able to have that conversation here today that we have to help a farmer to plug in the missing components of the data that they are capturing. Some of them are capturing good data, but it's very fragmented. It's kind of all over the place. We got to be able to pull all that together to define point A, understand where are we at today? What, what's your initial baseline is uh, like my buddy Jeremiah likes to say, what's your baseline of where you're at today? And then what is the opportunity to improve? And then we can utilize big data. We can utilize um, the consulting, we can utilize technology to reverse engineer the optimum path 
to getting to point B in a manner that is logistically going to work into your operation. And it's going to be very economically viable. Um, and you have transparency and you understand the concepts of being able to move the needle. But what I think the major opportunity is, is that we are now going to be able to directly improve farm profitability with our data. Number one, more actionable agronomic insights. Okay. We've got to be able to do that. There's been a lot of people chasing that for a long time, but I think we're getting much better at being able to, to look beyond just manage for manage fertilizer and maybe make a variable rate planting prescription with some of your data. But, um, but being able to um, just understand what's plan A, but also what's plan B and C and D and mother nature is going to throw monkey wrenches at us. So understanding, utilizing that data to create an actionable decision and be able to utilize that same data to report in a data connected supply chain, like we're saying, through an identity preserve system or, or somebody that wants to tell a sustainability story, or you can utilize that data to create a carbon credit or another ecosystem service credit. Um, there's lots of new opportunities emerging, but farmer needs to be able to integrate all that data once and utilize it multiple times. Mm-hmm. You know, when you talk about reverse engineering, I have to think the partnerships are a huge component of that. How do you reverse anything, reverse engineer anything, knowing what the value chain and the production chains in agriculture look like without having some established partnerships? How important is that today, Mitchell? Yeah, no, I mean, and all those partners are still really continuing to emerge. And a lot of those partnerships and stuff like these different um, companies that are wanting to drive sustainability or trying to meet all these sustainability goals or they want to offset their carbon footprint or, or they want to do more sustainable because they want to market it that way. That's all great. And we need all these initiatives. But for the most part, these companies don't know what the heck they're making a claim about. They don't know how to define it. They don't know what it means. They don't know if it's feasible. They pick an arbitrary date in a mostly arbitrary goal number. And then the board or the CEO tells their new sustainability hire, hey, go figure this out because now we've just put out this big goal and we don't know how to do it. So that does provide opportunity for us in the agricultural sector to say, hey, you guys have all these goals. You want to do all this sustainability stuff. We do too. Here's what it's going to cost us. Um, you know, and over the long haul, yeah, farmers by implementing regenerative systems can make more money. They can make more money doing organic too. They can make more money doing non-GMO potentially, Mm -hmm. but farmers don't do all those things right now because the uncertainty of how to change your system to get there costs money. And it's scary to change. Um, So that's where we need to have the economics to help us to overcome the initial hurdle, create the outcomes that these companies want to help them to meet their sustainability goals and put us in a more economically viable position as family farms uh, to be more economically resilient uh, because these dollar figure, these programs might go away and Mm -hmm. cost share dollars might go away and these carbon programs might go away. And we've seen it happen before. Uh, So uh, I can't, you know, say that they won't happen, that history won't repeat itself again. Well, Jason was just having this exact conversation. He was saying the exact same thing just before we went live this morning. So Jason, I know you have a lot to add here. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, I, I've got a couple of questions. Like when, Mitchell, when you start working with a, with a new farm, when you talk about, you know, where you're at today and where you want to go, this is a, this is an experiment, right? I mean, I mean, when we talk about cover crops and soil health, it's, it's trying a little bit on a little acres, you know, a little bit of acreage and, and, and really, because it's, it, it's, it sounds easy, but it's pretty complex, right? And yeah. figuring out what works and it's really localized. 
Yeah. I mean, it's getting the right local information, but I think the opportunity now is going to be for those farmers that are a little bit later adopting now that they have a lot of other people that they can look to for advice to overcome the initial hurdles that a lot of us and our families have gone through over even multiple decades like mine has. Like we've seen a lot of the issues and I've seen it from other folks. So when I go to that new farmer that's saying, all right, I'm ready to give her a shot. I'm able to to enable them with the knowledge that they need to, to jump in a little bit more head first. I still don't encourage a guy to, you know, give, do everything and bet the whole farm in year one. That's a terrible idea, but you don't have to just try it on two acres. You can try it at a, at a good scale um, because we understand how to avoid those issues. And also there are a lot of kosher dollars and there's different programs that can really help to curb that economic burden to at least, you know, in year one, I want to at least break even on all this stuff on the data that we're collecting, the time that's being allocated. Um, typically try to not have to buy all new equipment in year one. Let's work with what we've got. Let's make a slight adjustment. Then as we get more comfortable, we can get more aggressive, but learn from other people around you is huge. And there's more opportunity than ever to be able to do that with social media and with YouTube and everything else and conversations like this to learn. And we see the same thing on the data side where, where a lot of people, you know, start to collect data and they expect immediately to, to learn something brand new. And it really takes a couple years of them, you know, being able to compare year over year as to what happened, you know, all years are different. There's, there's just a lot of variability. So it's, it's something that a lot of people outside of agriculture don't understand, like we learn on an annual cycle. Like, you know, we, we, we learn once a year and we, we have time to do our analysis and, and, and track things back. And so when we start to look at the, the grain markets, that's what gets me really excited because I believe you mentioned it earlier, but there's going to be this differentiated grain market. And we've got, we've got these natural um, companies that are, that are, um, they have high carbon footprints right now. Okay. An airline is, is, it's really hard for an airline, for example, to become, you know, carbon neutral or offset. It's just, it, it's not in their, in their DNA. And so the, the cool thing about these markets that are developing is they're willing to start to, to, to pay farmers for the practices that they've, that they've started to adopt. And so you, you, you create almost this third party market of this new value stream that hasn't really existed before and the rules are still being set up for it. But don't forget, you still got the, you know, the grain companies down here sitting here going, well, wait a minute, we've got some of those same issues and we're going to need to, you know, we don't really want someone else outside of our business to get into it. So how can we leverage our position with the growers today to, to sell a product that has some sort of differentiation on it and be able to maintain that within our supply chain. And so those two things are gonna be, put the farmer, I think, in a really good position going forward. So long as they they are, they have the data to, to, to validate what, what they've done and how they've, the practices they've used. Um, it's just gonna be the, the next, I think the next five years are super exciting about has, as these markets develop and what we can really do and what we can really figure out. And it's not just, it's not just here in the US, this is, this is all over the globe. And that's a pretty exciting um, opportunity. I think the key thing there, though, too, as we look at identity preserved or differentiated grain, that my what I'm thinking about is, okay, why? Who gives a crap? Unless mm-hmm. there's additional value to attach to that grain, who gives a crap about keeping it separate out because it's going to cost more money. It's going to cost that cost is going to have to go somewhere. It's either going to come out of the farmer's pocket to keep it differentiated 
or you know the the uh, consumer is going to have to pay more or, or upstream and unless there's real value a real value proposition there they're not going to want to pay more for it so we that's what we need to really enable with the data coming off our farms is why is my grain better than the other grain and why should my go mine go in a bin on its own or why should mine be connected with data what makes me so special what makes my grain so special we got to be able to share that story to be able to get the economics here to really work out. Absolutely. There are a lot of puzzle pieces to put together in that too. You know, who helps a farmer determine are all these additional inputs worth the additional value that I'll be getting? Where's that break even at? Are you guys doing that, Mitchell? No. So I think, uh, I think what it's going to end up being that's really going to drive the differentiation is on nutrient density. That's what it boils down to where the grain itself is higher value and higher quality. Um, these other things like the, the carbon outcomes or other stuff like that can be sold as an asset on its own, differentiated from the bushel itself and connected to it. Now, there might be some, you know, low carbon or something like that, but you might not know exactly the specific carbon footprint of that bushel. Um, I think that'll be sold separately than the bushel of grain itself, but there's definitely opportunity. And we're seeing that already. I mean, uh, there was programs going to... Uh, to buy like soybeans at a slightly higher premium for soybeans that were grown on ground with cover crops. I mean, those things are already happening, but then that the soybean just gets mixed in with the rest of them because they're not creating additional value up the supply chain on, well, why does it matter that those soybeans had, you know, were grown on cover crop ground. We have to create value onward from there. Um, and again, that's where I think nutrient density or some of these things that are going to directly impact the consumer's pocketbook, that's where I think this gets really interesting. And, and as you increase your soil organic matter, that's when you start to increase your nutrient density, right? Do you have- well, just uh, balancing, balancing yep. the balancing the uh, fertility that's going in there. Organic matter is a huge driver. I mean, organic matter is the home for the microbes um, and a portion of organic matter is the carbon, you know, the, the driver of, of all of this to be able to enable the diverse biology in our system. Uh, to to create the health and, and really what it boils down to is you are what you eat and if you're eating an animal that was felled a healthier crop that because in that crop is healthier because the soil that it was raised in is healthier like it's all just connected okay so we're eating the animal the animal ate the grain the grain got its food from the soil and we are enabling the soil to be more balanced and to create a healthier plant to create a healthier animal to create a healthier human so it all just boils down to that simple principle um you know and uh and seeing those outcomes i think could be really basic just looking at it's a better protein content or better starch or oil or whatever the better fiber content um whatever those outcomes need to be i think we'll get all the way to the actual nutrient type of components the actual vitamin components and stuff like um especially going into whether it be in, in i think even in our corn soybean system of most of our grain, of course, is not going to feed a human directly, but going to a pig. And if we can get better feed conversion for that pig and they have to buy less additives and a lot of those additives coming from China, coming from overseas, like if we can have better feed for our animals right here, there's direct efficiencies that can be garnered from that uh, pork, from that hog farmer. Um, whether they're getting paid more for up the supply chain or not, but they can directly improve their efficiencies and improve their bottom line. And, and uh, they should be better enabled with data to understand what is differentiated about that grain and, and why should I mix um, certain grain that's, that's healthier into my feed rations. 
So we've said that we're in the early innings of this whole um, this whole evolution, really, of, of what the data is going to enable. What what is your opinion of some of the markets that are out there right now when you have multi-year contracts and and, and this type of thing? I mean, it, it it feels a little early to me, but what what do you think? I'm in the same boat um, with all these carbon things. My my message here today, as it sits, and what November something what is today november 5th um as it sits today i'm still saying hey yeah don't uh just let the dust settle here just a little bit get your ducks in a row get your data put together get you know your initial point a identified and and maybe see what the best options would be for you um but especially some of these contracts that are going to be super long term you got to read the fine print um there's pros and cons to all the different markets um, if there's some opportunity to put dollars into your family farm uh, that's risk adverse, that's not going to really lock you down long term, or you at least understand um, how to have some freedom over the long haul. If there's an opportunity to, to put money in your pocket, great, like let's do it. But um, betting on some of these companies on who's going to win when this space is changing every day, I just don't know who the winner is going to be yet. So it's hard for me to want to lock into a 10 year deal when I don't know who's going to win, but excited for a couple of different things. I mean, we're directly involved with a program with Rabobank. Um, SIBO has some interesting things coming out. Nori has some interesting things that looks like are going to be coming out. Um, you know, Yara is pushing hard in the, in the space right now. Uh, Land of Lakes is going to be, you know, pushing on some new stuff. Obviously, Indigo has has been kind of the main one that's been been pushing um, and making a lot of the headlines. But there's a lot of new opportunities, and there's more coming too. So, I don't know. I I think if there's an opportunity to put money in your pocket today that's risk adverse, sweet, let's do it. Like that's awesome. I'll take you know, money's great. Like that money's green. Let's do it. But it's got to be risk adverse um, and got to got to not disqualify you from future opportunities and uh, which brings up additionality. I don't need to get on that soapbox right now, but, um, but that if we don't fix that term, um, I don't see any of these things really working out over the long haul, but um, working on that, like I said, that's, we can go down that rabbit hole if we want, but. Um. Well, my question to both of you guys, you guys have teams on the ground talking to farmers every day. What are you hearing from farmers? in regards to carbon markets? Um, so it, in our network, we've got about 1,100 farmers that we work with. And I think I have three um, three farmers that like just organically went and enrolled in, in carbon markets. Um, they've gotten paid maybe a couple thousand bucks um, at this point, very, very minimum. Uh, the What they were expecting to get was not the same as the check that they received. So that's um, there's just a lot of over, over promising and under delivering in the space. I really worry about that. Um, but a lot of these guys are, are very interested in, in doing something. Um, but out of my network, like I said, 1100 farmers, or whatever, um, some farmers that came, you know, that with some of these pilot projects that we're in some farmers that got brought to us from the companies that we're piloting with, you know, so there's more farmers that have gotten paid pretty good chunks of money. Um, but some of our farmers naturally, um, enrolling in these uh, that haven't gotten a whole lot and, and uh, the 
go ahead. I, I forget what my next. Time. I was just going to say, and a lot of people don't realize how difficult it is to comply with these programs, right? There's, there's a lot of work that goes into getting that data in the right format, in the right place for them to be able to accept it on the other side. And I think that's something that oftentimes gets overlooked is how much you're going to spend in either time or hiring someone else to get this stuff, to put it in the, the proper format, to be able to move it over. And that's where I, I preach on interoperability all the time. That's a huge point. I have one of my farmers that enrolled, one of these three farmers that, that I mentioned, one of them enrolled in one of these programs, it took him 60 hours to accumulate all the historical data and stuff that's needed. That's insane. And uh, so we're really working to to improve that. We I was able to beta test one of the things that we're going to be launching. And, uh, and I was able to accumulate 10 years of historical data in about 25 minutes. Um, yeah. So uh, for my operation. So really excited to be able to massively cut down on that. My, my overall hope is to go from 60 hours to 60 minutes. Um, last kind of thing that I had forgotten about earlier with my network of, of people, um, about 90% of the farmers that we work with are already using no-till about 75% are already using cover crops. They don't qualify for these carbon markets the way that they sit today. And my farm doesn't either. I've, I've never gotten paid for, uh, for my carbon. Um, mostly. Yeah. I mean, we don't, qualify for the markets the way that they're written today. They're not inclusive of all farms. Um, they're not necessarily driven by what is your actual impact to the carbon space and your actual drawdown. Uh, they're privatized cost share. Um, and, and I think there's real opportunity to improve that. I've heard as much as uh, some companies trying to get that 10 year baseline that you were talking about, you know, spending, you know, upwards of six to eight to $10 an acre for having someone try to take the thumb drives and, and get it into the, into the right format to be able to submit. So those are real costs when you're, when you're just getting started, starting on this, that you probably don't think of when you see the, you know, the $15 an acre. Yeah. So not to go down this rabbit hole, Mitchell, but what's the answer to additionality? I mean, we don't have a great way to measure what we're capturing. Yeah, let's do it. So additionality. Um, okay. So I'm, uh, I'm one of two farmers on the working group, the carbon working group with the climate action reserve. So climate action reserve, Vera, uh, gold standard is kind of involved, but Vera and climate action reserve are kind of the main registries that a lot of the, the programs in the U S are, are utilizing. Uh, these registries are the ones that wrote the rules. Like I said, I was, uh, on a working group when the rules were written for climate action reserve. And at that point in 2019, I did not know what the heck I was really doing uh, directly in the carbon space. I was deep into soil health, but not necessarily on carbon. And uh, what ended up happening was the term additionality um, was really copied and pasted a little too much from other markets. And additionality, the way that I interpret it anyway, and the way that I'm seeing a lot of these um, programs interpreting it, is that you were doing these historical things. And now you sign up for a carbon program and now you're doing these new things and we'll pay you for the additional impact in between. We'll pay you for the new boxes that you're checking between your historical and your new. And we'll pay you for the Delta. To me, that's cost share. Here's what I was doing. Now I'm going to check a couple boxes. Now I'm going to do maybe some no-till, some cover crop or reduce my nitrogen. And now you're going to pay me for the difference that I created. What I believe, and, and that's very, you know, it works well for forestry, okay? There was an acre that was not forest. Now I plant a bunch of trees and now I sequester carbon for the next 150 years that those trees are there. A direct one-time change, but in agriculture, it's not a one-time change. Every year, it's going to be different. I think what we have to get to is annual additionality. Um, and the other opportunity being help a farm to identify what is their actual carbon footprint today. 
What's their actual emissions? What's their actual drawdown? What's their real footprint today? At least get us a general idea. Like right now, there's no transparency around this on how to calculate your actual carbon footprint. I'm deep into this. I have no idea what my carbon footprint is on my farm. That's a problem. So we need to help farmers to actually identify what is their carbon footprint and uh, and then allow them to, if they are emitting carbon today, allow them to earn a mitigation credit as they decrease their impact. And if they are actually net negative, if they're actually sequestering carbon, then they should be able to earn a sequestration credit. In other markets, there's mitigation credits or sequestration credits. I don't know why we didn't do that for agriculture. I think there's a huge opportunity there. And helping to um, equip us with the tools, the resources uh, to be able to define our actual carbon footprint. That's what I've been pushing on um, the federal government to be able to help to enable that more. Um, like the Growing Climate Solutions Act that's wanting to put a bunch of money into this. I think allowing for more transparency and a more level playing field around how do you actually define your carbon footprint, that's a role that the government could play. Allow us to better understand how to create this outcome and then enable the free market to go and be creative to get more of those outcomes. The main issue to, to wrap this up is American agriculture is at the top of, you know, in the world of being efficient and, and, and uh, having sustainable productivity because of farmer innovation. That's why we're here. That's why all of our companies are here. It's farmer innovation that is made American agriculture successful. And in these carbon initiatives, they are completely throwing innovation to the side saying, nope, you have to stay in this little box. You can't be innovative. You can't be creative. You can't do any of these things. We're going to pay you just a couple bucks to check the box and be happy with it. And that is not the way to get this done. We have to enable farmer innovation, farmer creativity, allowing them to be paid based on merit, based on their actual contribution to improving the solution um, and solving the problem, or else this is all just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's going to fall apart. Like, and it already happened before. That's why I don't understand. Like we already solved this with the Chicago climate exchange. Like it already fell apart because of these exact same issues. Like, why do we not learn from that? and uh, and be more transparent and make this real. So I think it's going to have to get there. That's my soapbox. But. <laughs> it's a good one. The carbon conversation continues <laughs> as it will for probably many years. Jason, final thoughts here this morning. I would just like to say at, at SureTrack and Farm Mobile, we're working on being able to collect the field data. We're working on being able to have that field data carry over into your grain bins and really start then working on the carbon footprint of how you're how you're drying your grain, how it's storing, um, and then being able to attach and associate that field level data with the data in the bin so that we can start to create these differentiated grain markets. And so all those things, and even you know the water, if you're irrigating, what what what's the cost to pull to 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 pull the water up and what's the cost to dry and are you are you doing it traditional drying are you doing air drying like there's a whole there's a whole lot of pieces to put together and i love working for the company that i am right now because we we have we can touch all of those things it's just a matter of bringing these pieces together mm-hmm. great all right well thanks everyone for joining us here this morning mitchell thanks for your time we really appreciate it we know you're a busy guy jason same to you thanks for joining us all right thank you Always fun. Always fun. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Brian, I think we're ready to hand things back to you this morning. Thanks for joining us for AGI SureTrack Coffee Talk. Connect with us on the web at agisuretrackcommunity.com.